Welcome to the Bard and Bible, a conversational devotional about scripture, life, and ministry from the perspective of a tabletop missionary still trying to figure out what those words actually mean when you string them together. There's a seat by the fire over there, and it looks like things are just about to get started. Tonight's tale, detailed account of a left-handed assassin. Greetings, friends. Come in. I am Mike Perna, your resident dwarf bard, and this is the Bard and Bible. Please come in. The series continues, and this one is definitely a doozy. This is the stuff of legends, the sort of things adventurers around here talk about for generations. You know, I once knew a king killer. Well, was more like he had taken a swat at a rather large cockroach that he had dubbed the king of his cellars. But who cares of such things when a story is finally told? Shh, shh, I think we're about to start again. All right, there are some things I want to clear up before I get neck deep into this story. Those of you playing our home game may notice that the story I'm talking about today, Ehud, a guy who... I referenced in the first episode of this series, actually shows up earlier in the Book of Judges. Jephthah, who was the opening salvo of this series, is found in Judges 11. Ehud appears in Judges 3. So, you might wonder why on earth did I start this series with Jephthah and not Ehud and go in order? Well, I could say that it's some kind of oblique reference to the fact that ancient Jewish storytelling really didn't care about chronology as far as making its point, but I didn't think that far ahead. Though I can say that there were some things that kind of popped out at me as to why I chose to do Jephthah first. First off, Jephthah is a story about hubris. Jephthah is a judge that is called by man and not by God. See, we're going to spend a little bit of time this one. Because Ehud's story is a very simple one, I thought that it was important that rather than spend too much time talking about the story itself, I can kind of use this time to talk about the nature of the Book of Judges and how that story gets told. Because it really kind of is important. And one of the, the things that you're going to notice when you hear about this, this cycle of the Book of Judges is that most of the time, it's God who raises up a judge who basically brings his people out of oppression and into new freedom and new life. Jephthah was different. Jephthah was raised up by the people. In the text, normally it's like, and God raised up so-and-so. This one, the people went looking for Jephthah. And I, I thought that was interesting. I thought that kind of warranted special attention, and so I figured what more special attention could there be than bringing it up front. Likewise, there was another reason, because Jephthah isn't a hero. Jephthah is not a good guy. Uh, I wanted this series, from, from its inception through all the different things we're going to talk about, to be about people you don't talk about in scripture. And in each case, there's going to be a reason for that. Jephthah's reason was is that he is rash. He is 
you know, not a good person. He makes poor decisions. And I kind of wanted that up front because I wanted this to be a discussion about characters that aren't typical. They aren't the kind of people we normally want to elevate and spend a lot of time talking about. So that's why Jephthah got bumped up first. And really to kind of go off of that, part of it is that this whole series is about stuff that you won't see coming. I mean, the reason I selected these people is because of the fact that no one thinks about them. So what more can I do to really set the tone of this is stuff you don't know or don't really often think about being in your Bible than a story about potential human sacrifice? I really hope that got your attention because Jephthah's story always gets mine. Now, that being kind of cleared up, let me begin with this discussion on Ehud. To talk about Ehud, I have to bring up the series that, which I could kind of say would be the inspiration for this series on Barden Bible. Uh, it was the first time I did something like this, and it was I happened to be teaching a Sunday morning Bible study for a group of fifth grade boys. And I don't know if you've ever taught fifth grade boys, but if you ever want to see a group of people utterly uncaring about your Bible study lesson, teach a group of fifth grade boys. But having been one of these myself, I, I had a general kind of insight into how they thought and, and what they thought was cool and important and worth listening to. So I told them the story of Ehud, the left-handed assassin. And that blew their minds. They're like, no, come on, that that can't actually be in the Bible. And I said, no, it most certainly is. And I, I went about talking about the details of the story, and they're like, oh, this is, this is crazy. This is awesome. Ehud is one of my favorite characters because of the fact that his story reads very much like something I would see in my fantasy stories. He is the kind of character that would show up in a D&D game. He is the kind of character that I loved reading about. And I, I think it's interesting that in this story, God raised him up. He is this fascinating, like, deceitful, which which really adds to the, the interesting part about God raising him up. He is He's a very clever, very very powerful man and he just kind of gets overlooked in this book of judges despite the fact that everything in me would think that this guy is the kind of story that you want to bring front and center so let me tell you kind of the the cycle of judges because ehud coming up into this is something that you'll need to to see the cycle in order to really see Ehud's place in this. The book of Judges, over and over and over again, has a very similar pattern. Every judge that comes up deals with the same thing. So it starts off with a, a phrase. And now every time a phrase repeats in the Bible, it's worth noting. Anytime you see the same phrase or the same collection of words, Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter. 
when you see something that's repeated over and over and over again, that is not just flippantly done. It is intentional and it is to prove the point. And the phrase in the book of Judges that you will see repeated constantly is the people did what was right in their own eyes. And this is basically the idea that the people usually due to a long stretch of time, you know, happening between judges when everything's good and everything's fine and there are no problems. After this long stretch of years, the people basically get, you know, they don't they don't care. They no longer care about God. They no longer care about, you know, doing what's right. They just kind of want to do their own thing and be, be left to their own devices. And in a way, that's kind of what God does. God basically says every time, okay, you want to do this, despite the fact that I was the one who sent somebody to save you the last time. You want to do what's your, what's your own deal? Okay, that's fine. And then God sends in an oppressor. There is some kind of force that comes in and puts the people in harm's way. There's a time of, of oppression and pain and suffering, and then the people will cry out, God, please save us. God, rescue us. They will be reminded of the God of Israel. They will call to him. And then God sends a judge to liberate them. Judges were responsible for everything. They were, they were the epitome of leadership. They were uh, civil leaders. They were, uh, they, they were in charge of the government. They were in charge of the military. They, they were the guy. And so when you see these cycles, when you see these people come up and you see God bring these judges forward, you think, oh man, it's so ridiculous that these people, the, the people that, that constantly have to have God show them over and over and over again who he is and what he does, you think, oh, they're being so silly. I can't believe they would be so foolish to keep falling for this. And the reason I love the book of Judges, why there is not one but two different judges in this series, is not only because of the fact that their their stories are unique and interesting, their stories, I would dare even say from my perspective, Ehud is a fun, you know, engaging story. Not only do I have two judges in here because of that, I also have two judges in here because this book reminds me that we all fall prey to these cycles that it is easy to when everything is good when everything is great and we no longer feel the desperate need for god that we always want to step away from him and stop caring about whether or not we're actually following him whether our walk with him is close or far away we stop caring and start doing what is right in our own eyes so I, I love this book, and Ehud especially. And that leads me to actually talk about how Ehud fits in this cycle. Ehud's story is interesting in the fact that it kind of fits within this sandwich of people that make Ehud's story look like a part of the Gospels, like something that everyone talks about. Because the people that, that go before Ehud's story and after Ehud's story are basically like maybe a paragraph. And so it, it's interesting. It's easy for Ehud to kind of be like, okay, this happened, then this happened. Then you get into this rut and then you go, okay, and then Ehud happened and this is a cool thing. And then, and then this guy happened. But Ehud, like I, like I've been setting up Ehud, I, there's something about, there's something visceral about his story. And I won't repeat all of it 
you can read Judges 3 and and see all of what Ehud's story is about. But this is what I want to, to kind of point out, to kind of recount to you. I'll kind of go through the, the highlights, as it were, of this story and then share with you a little bit of why Ehud, above and beyond just being kind of like a video game character or, or a role-playing game character, why Ehud stands out to me as far as the story goes. So the the oppressor that the text is very clear that God is the one who put these this oppressor over Israel is the Moabites and specifically their king Eglon. And Eglon I'm just going to call it like it is as a rather large gentleman myself I will just say it. The text says that Eglon is a really incredibly fat man. This will come into play later. Another little bit of information that will come into play later is the fact that Ehud is described, among other things, as being left-handed. This, again, will show up later. So Ehud decides that, that he's going to go in as part of this group of people giving tribute to Eglon. Tribute, there's some argument as to what it could be. It was probably like livestock or or riches or whatever. Whatever it was... Ehud comes in with his crew and they drop it in front of the king. And Ehud then says to everybody else who kind of carried it in, he kind of just waves them off and he turns around and he says, oh, by the way, I have a secret message for you. And the text says that, that Eglon is intrigued by this and he sends everyone else out of the room. It is just Eglon and Ehud. And in this moment, again, in this Right out of a, of a movie kind of moment, Ehud grabs the dagger that he had hidden on his right thigh. And he, he goes, I have a message to you from God. And then stabs Eglon right in the gut. And he says the, the text itself, again, reading more like, like some kind of noir, like comic book, or, or some kind of, you know, virulent Conan story. So that he stabbed the king and the fat came over the dagger. Basically, the dagger disappeared. And what happens after that is that the king is, is completely dead. He's just, just sitting right there. It, after that amazing, like Bruce Willis-esque one-liner. And a very simple thing happens where Ehud then locks the door. And he makes his way out. And you think, okay, well, well, what could that possibly do? Again, the text, I'm not making this up. This is not me putting this on the text. This is literally what you can read in your Bible. It says that the guards, seeing that the door was locked, thought to themselves, oh, I, I guess the king is probably going to the bathroom. And so they, they give him a minute because they're like, oh, we don't, we don't want to interrupt him. He's doing his thing. But, as they delayed, Ehud's running, and and I can see this play out. I see this scene of uh, of Ehud running through the castle hallways and running out into the world as as these guys are just kind of standing guard, saying, "How how long is His Majesty going to be in there?" Eventually, they discover that it's been a little too long. It's gone beyond normalcy for for like like normally the king would he'd come out by now. And so they break in, 
see that the king is dead. But by that time, Ehud has gone. He has sounded this horn and the men of Israel just raise up over this hill and just destroy the Moabites. Normally, at this point in, in the judges cycle, there's peace and there, it usually lasts for a little bit. Usually it's the, the extent of the, the life of the judge. Ehud did such an amazing job setting up this absolute knockdown, drag out defeat of the Moabites that the peace that comes after Ehud lasts for 80 years. Like that's how thoroughly they defeated their enemies. Now I could end this story right here with Ehud being a sound nominee for if they were going to create a League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, the Bible version, Ehud should definitely be on the team. That in and of itself would be worth the why aren't we talking more about this guy. But there's an aspect of this story that I really think needs to be brought up. And the fact that it needs to get brought up is directly tied to this whole series and why it needs to happen. See, there are a lot of little details in this story. And there are details that is there all of them are really easy to overlook to either just read completely over like it's no big deal it's just a, a descriptor or a, a piece of scenery it's really easy to just disregard them or you outright say why do we care why is this important so you either don't acknowledge them at all or you do acknowledge them but say why do we care and everything in this story hinges on all of these details, at least the, the, the power of God working in the story is seen in these details. Now, this is all going to be inferred. This is not going to be blatant. The only times you can say that there is, is blatant, you know, kind of teachable moments in this is when, when Ehud stands up before the men of Israel and say, God has given you the Moabites into your hands. This isn't that that kind of thing. The text is not clear on this. This is me coming from this text. But every one of these details is in this text. And I've come to realize through a lot of study of the Bible that a detail is always important. Otherwise, they would have just spoken generally. If somebody went out of their way to throw a specific detail into the text, there's a reason for that. And it's just Ehud is the epitome of that fact. Let's break it down. Ehud. How is Ehud described? Amongst, you know, the, the place of his origin, Ehud is described as being left-handed. Now, why does that matter? You may have asked yourself, now, why didn't somebody find this dagger? Why did they let him in the room with the king Clearly, if you invite an envoy from the people that you are actively oppressing into the king's chamber, clearly one of the guards might be like, hey, uh, maybe we should check this guy out before we leave him alone with the king. And that's probably what actually happened. But when you realize that the majority of people back then, as it is still today, the majority of people are right handed. And if you allow me the, the moment to nerd out for a minute, when you are right-handed, you would hang your blade on your left hip. There's a simple reason for this. It's easy to draw and quickly attack 
if you pull from your left hip with your right hand. Because if you tried to pull from your right, if you're right-handed, in order to pull the blade out of its sheath, out of its scabbard, you would have to raise it up over your head to get the blade pointed at the at your enemy. This makes it really easy for you to see it, to block it, or to dodge. It is an awkward maneuver. To move quickly, you would draw from your left, pull out with your right, and then you could immediately go into an attacking position. Ehud, being left-handed, had his blade on his right. If they bothered to search his right at all, they probably would have just done so in passing, because who on earth is going to stab anybody with a blade on their right? It's such a tiny little detail, but so important, because the rest of the story doesn't happen without Ehud being left-handed. Another detail. Eglon is a big dude. Yeah, this is kind of important. It's really easy to just be like, okay, he's he's the villain of the picture. He's, how do we make the villain, you know, uh, uh, stand out and be like blatantly like, I'm the bad guy. You make him, you know, just gross. You, you, like the text, the text kind of makes it prettier if this can be the case, they just, they simply call it very fat. The original language is very colorful in the, the size of this gentleman. They make him just out to be gross. So why does that matter? Well, part of it is this idea of, of the blade disappearing. Part of it is this fact that, well, of course, if the king's going to relieve himself, he's not going to go somewhere else. He's just going to find a place to do that right there in his chamber. He's not going to, like, there's so many little things that like, okay, this story unfolds this way because yeah, Ehud's it's a very simple thing that allows you to realize that yes, this isn't weird. Like the fact that they're waiting outside for him to go to the bathroom, though, though they're sitting at his chambers, like, okay. Okay, this, this makes sense, right? This is, this works because that would probably be there. This would probably be a thing that he would do. The blade disappearing so they would have to go in and see that, that something was wrong. That's a thing that only comes along when you, you don't just overlook the fact that the text a couple of times says Eglon was a very fat man. Finally, one thing, this piece of scenery that is important is that all of this happens by the idols of Gilgal. So, again, going back to Ehud's amazing one-liner, I have a message to you from God. He does this in front of the idols of Gilgal, basically saying, look, I have a message to you from my God, in front of your gods who have nothing to say about this. My God is here to end you. And I love all of that. These tiny little details, this, this little thing that is so easy to overlook. God says, no, every little aspect of this story from the protagonist, the antagonist, and even the setting say, my goodness, I am doing something powerful and meaningful here. I have brought about the redemption of my people in this amazing story. And I think that's where I want to end it. 
this tiny little detail after tiny little detail, which builds up into this amazing climax of the people of Israel rising up and freeing themselves from their oppressors. My goodness, that'll preach. My goodness. I, I literally, maybe it's the fact that we're getting into winter now and it's getting a little colder here in Jersey, but I am covered in goosebumps because I love this story. And if nothing else, if the rest of this series blows over you, I want you to think about the fact that these tiny little details, these little stories, these little characters, these seemingly insignificant settings, all of this is super important to understand the full weight of the story that God is telling. And there may be a pile of what you think may be insignificant little details about your life and about your family and about your story. But your story is infinitely worth the telling. And those details are crucially important to the God who knows every hair on your head. It's amazing to me as I look forward to the birth of my son in a handful of months. I, I look at that verse that, that God knows every hair on our heads. The idea that before we even walk the earth, we are known by God. And that we are known at such intimate detail that God is the one who knits us together. All those stories have new de new weight to me. All that that those passages that talk about the detail and the fine point knowledge that God has of us reminds us that to be a dwarf bard is to be someone whose story is worth the telling and whose climax is known by God and is part of a beautiful, powerful narrative. So do not let anyone ever call you suboptimal because the details of your life are worth paying attention to. I look forward to continuing this series with you guys and bringing out some more people. I think we're going to be leaving the book of Judges at least for the while. I might come back to it. We'll still see. We'll see how long this lasts. But... I'm still going to come and bring you more people and more stories that you may have overlooked because these people are worth looking into. And I hope that it gives you a new appreciation for the kind of stuff that exists in your Bible if you are willing to open it up to the places that aren't often tread and to see what God has for you there. I look forward to bringing you all of that next time here in the Barden Bible.